We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode number 57 of Lion Legacy. Always good to see you, my friend, Ross. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hey, Jared, you know, for those keeping track of their Lion Legacy scorecard at home, the astute listener would remember that from several episodes ago, we were talking about summer vacations. I mean, this was probably back in August. And you alluded to your vacation to the national parks, which got waylaid a little bit because I've heard this story. But for the listeners, tell us about your end of summer vacation. Yeah, it did. Allie and I were actually supposed to go out. We had it all booked, go out west go to the Seattle area and the three national parks in the state of Washington, had it all set. And then two days before we found out wildfires and it was wildfires were in one section, but the smoke was covering pretty much the entire state. And when you're hiking, the last thing you want to be doing is inhaling all of the smoke. So we pulled the plug real quickly and said, all right, where can we go? National Parks has been kind of on that list. And we decided to go up to Bar Harbor and Acadia National Park in Maine. Did a night in Portland. By the way, have you been to Maine and the National Uh, Parks up there? No, I've never been to the parks. I was in Maine once when I was like a teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the farthest up I made it was Portland, but not much further there. I mean, look, it's a... But the state is bigger, you know, when you're there, like all that natural land. I mean, it's beautiful from what I've seen. It's on the list. It's great. Great hiking. Yeah. Highly recommended. Fresh air. Yeah. I don't do lobster. I don't do seafoods. You know, that wasn't a, a plus for me, but I know Ali certainly enjoyed it. But yeah, certainly would recommend that. We listened on the way up to Matt Enderley's podcast because Allie never heard it. That's like a sneaky good favorite of ours, you know? It is. And if you recall, in that podcast, he talks about bears. And that's like always on my mind when I go to these. Of course. We went on a few hikes where there's not a lot of people and it's just quiet. And you're like eerily looking around and being like, wait, please tell me that there's no bear. Did you have a plan in the back of your mind? You're like, all right, I'm going to be prepared if I if we see a bear, here's what we're gonna do. You're not supposed to run that, right? right. You're supposed to get like really big. Yeah, you make a lot of make, noise. Make a lot of noise. That's but right. like your instinct, of course, is probably to take yeah. off. So sure. in my mind, I'm probably like, don't run, don't run, don't run. But it is always comforting when you see someone else on the hike, because then you're like, All right, they maybe have gone in this yeah. territory and you know, that's pretty safe. One a- thing- any, any wild animals up ahead where you've been that I should be aware of? <laughs> exactly. Coming like from the opposite direction. Please warn us. Please yeah. warn us. Yeah. One thing that was not, which is quite interesting, that outside of the park itself, we stayed in this small town and they had a little shop with cheesecakes. And interestingly, in all these different types of cheesecakes, but interestingly enough, it was open 24-7, but not manned. So you would go in. No one else was there. No workers, no employees. 
and you're on the honor system okay pick up the cheesecake that you wanted and either venmo they left their venmo information or you could put cash in this lock box they left a calculator there so you could you know if you had multiple cheesecakes and we were just like this is so foreign to us this yeah. type of concept sure where people have a business based on the honor system right yeah. and the honor code you like put that in new york city like all the cheesecakes would be gone and you'd be left with a five dollar bill yeah wait a second hold on explain this so was it in like a refrigerator of some sort there's little clamshell containers or how was it set up yeah in, in clamshell containers okay. in massive sliding refrigerators you know like yeah. where you would get drinks out of right yeah, sure 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 they would label all these cheesecakes i don't know there must have been like 30 different types of flavors and then like for each flavor, 10, 15 pieces. Yeah. So clearly a successful business. Did you try it? Do you tried it, right? We did it. Yeah. We got we how got was it? it? Was it good? It was actually amazing. Uh, there you go. I, I was hoping you'd say that. But just such an interesting concept that you really yeah. do not see. Yeah, I, I believe that. I'm sure that's not far into New England. I mean, if you go to these small towns in like Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, you're gonna see this little store where it's like one person manning it and they go for out for lunch and it's like the locals come in and just it's all honor system. Right? They're good people. So nice. Yeah. It's, I love that. Good people. Good people. I love that. Sure. Hey, speaking of good people, Jared, we got a good topic today. We spoke with Larry Siemens. Larry's the president of Family Aid in Boston, not-for-profit, doing a lot of great work, helping to fight homelessness and providing services to families that are in need to keep them afloat while they're going through troubled times. <laughs> Jared, it's not, it's not as simple as people coming in, needing a place to go, and they put them in shelter, right? There's much more to it than that as far as homelessness goes. And he talks to us about the approach of Family Aid, what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, just admirable right i could come up with a whole bunch of adjectives here admirable noble impressive really respect the work that that he's leading and that they're doing the organization's doing up there in boston and puts a different perspective on it right it's not just the work they're doing but how it how policy's involved public policy he's got an interesting back background again as i like to say not going to give away how he got into the not-for-profit sector but it's not where he started his career it's where he landed and he seems to be very happy and pleased with the with what he's doing and I think it was really eye-opening, Jared, the work that Larry and, and Family Aid are doing. And before we get into your closing remarks and great puns, which I always look forward to, I do want to give a shout out to Kristen Hoberman of KDO Tools Podcasting Class, who brought Larry to us. So thanks so much, Kristen, and hopefully you have a great semester. And with that, Jared, we hope that our listeners are as inspired as we were speaking with Larry Siemens. <laughs> All right, let's welcome Larry Siemens, a 1985 scholars graduate with a degree in political science. While at Penn State, Larry was quite active and involved in Lion's Paw, Lion Ambassadors, Parma New, and Golden Key. Larry currently serves as president of Family Aid, leading provider of solutions to family homelessness in the greater Boston area. Welcome to Lion Legacy, Larry. We're looking forward to learning more about the great work you're doing. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, Larry, great to meet you. We're certainly very fortunate to pay rent and mortgage and be able to provide safe and, and stable home for ourselves and our families. But unfortunately, we know that there's a good percentage of the population that struggles to do just that. So before we get into family aid and the good work that your company's doing, uh, share with us a little bit more about homelessness and the short-term and long-term impacts. 
Yeah, homelessness, especially for families, these are parents with kids, is pretty much a crisis situation in the United States today. It often goes unseen because parents do anything you can for your kids. So the homelessness that everyone sees on the streets, especially in the urban and urban areas, are adults who are struggling with uh, substance use disorders and mental health disorders. For families, though, the issue is just purely poverty, right? It's the, the families who end up being homeless in the United States basically are living on the edge, right? They're living at or below the federal poverty level. Pennsylvania has a significant challenge with rural poverty and urban poverty. Massachusetts, the same thing. Families do what they can to get by. My own family, my father's Penn State grad, seven kids, right? Use the GI Bill to go to school. Uh, but we lived with my grandparents and my aunt and uncle. There were 13 of us living in a three-bedroom house that was owned by a coal company, right? And that's what my parents did to get by until my father could complete his degrees. He ended up going to Dickinson. He became the district attorney. But we really struggled. And the first time my parents owned a house was when my eldest sister had already graduated from college and I was six years old. Families do what they can to get by, right? That's what families do. What happens though, in some families, what happens is there's a precipitating incident, something beyond their control, right? So let's say, for example, my own family, I was fortunate my grandparents uh, watched us. We live with them. They watched us. I had sister, brothers and sisters to watch me while my parents worked. But what happened if my parents couldn't work or I didn't have a grandparent, right, to watch me, right? Parents then make difficult choices. Do I pay the rent or do I pay for the after-school program? I have a choice. Do I feed my family or do I pay my rent? And those choices in the short run are to help a family, but ultimately it pushes them towards eviction and losing their homes. And that's what organizations like Family Aid are set up to do. And that issue, it doesn't matter if you live in an urban core, in a rural area, poverty is persistent in the United States, and that's what we're trying to tackle. Can you paint us a little bit of a picture in terms of how Family Aid serves to be that solution? Yeah, so we've been doing this for 107 years, if you can believe it. Wow. Uh, we, wow. Were, we were founded actually in 1916, right? Penn State already had a, had a football team for 20 years, by the way. So we were founded in 1916 because a couple of things were happening in, in Massachusetts. There was a pandemic, the Spanish flu. There was strife in Eastern Europe. There was massive migration to the United States from families seeking a better life. And all three of those happening at the same time, and economic upheaval in Massachusetts was moving from a manufacturing economy to something else, right? This is 1916, right? It was a change in the economy. So skilled labor versus regular labor. So that combination created families literally wandering the streets with you know, parents with children looking for a better way of life. And so family aid was designed to solve, right? We came together to solve that issue. And here we are 107 years later, same issues, migration, changes in the economy, a pandemic and strife around the world, right? Global challenges. And so more and more families are showing up. So our, our approach to this is actually to think about both the child and the parent. It's about uh, economic empowerment, helping families gain uh, economic assets, utilizing the resources of communities to lift their families up while we're also concerned about the impacts on children in their developmental stages to make sure that they're getting the resources they need as well. So our goal over the 107 years is to make sure that every member of the family actually is supported in a way that actually gets them to self-sufficiency up on their feet as soon as possible. Excellent.
And so just to put a, a statistic on it, Family Aid has helped over 320,000 yeah. children and parents. And let me say that again, 320,000 yeah. children and parents in the greater Boston area. Of course, every person, every family has their yeah. own story. They're all special. But over the course of your time at Family Aid, can you recall a couple of stories or moments that really stand out to you? Yeah, thanks, Ross. Yeah, I think there are probably two. One was when I first came to Family Aid, which was six years ago. I met a woman, her name was Hattie, is Hattie, and she had used utilized the services of family, she and her family, over the previous eight years, right? So she's been with us in some way or another. We keep in touch with our families, so what, 14 years or so? Very interesting. First generation American family, similar to probably many of ours, right? Many Penn Staters were first and second generation families, right? My own second generation family, right? So she reminded me of my own family, right? Her parents came over, her husband's parents came over. He was a laborer. He worked for a utility company. He had a middle-class job, right? He was one of the poll workers, you know, fixing telephone poles, worked for the phone company. Great job. Fell out of a bucket. Oh, meanwhile, they had two kids. Her, she was taking care of her mother, right? Families caring for themselves. She was working like a part-time childcare job. They had their own house. He falls out of the bucket. Handicapped for life, right? Breaks his back in a wheelchair. No income, right? She's raising her kids. And so they fell from having their own home in Massachusetts to being evicted, right? Trying to keep the family together and came into our care. So our goal was to help her make sure that she, because her husband couldn't work for as well, making sure he was getting unemployment, all the things they didn't know, right? They just, they didn't want handouts. So first, look, there's a benefit here. We got to help you get it. She didn't want it. Many families are really proud that they don't want handouts from the government. So had to help them first figure out how to work the medical system, literally get him in a wheelchair, get him the supports he needed while we helped her begin her own education, which she had put on hold so her kids could get the support they needed. Many of our own families have done that. Many Penn Staters, right? Parents make sacrifices. So we got her kid, her son made sure he stayed in school. We made sure he was getting academic supports while we helped her with her own education to get her a job. Fast forward, over the years that we worked with, her son ended up getting an academic scholarship. Most brilliant kid, and I've met him now as, a, as an adult. Brilliant guy, right, who went to Columbia. Now he's an engineer working for a major international engineering company. And he says, had family not been there to help make sure he got all his academic supports while his parents were going through their crisis, he wouldn't be where he is today. Hattie, finished her undergraduate degree at Boston College. She then went on to get her master's degree. And now she's a director of a program that's a companion organization to us that looks for, forward to the welfare of children. And their family's back and, say, and she owns her own home again. To me, that's like a total success. Wow. And it's a, lo a long-term success that's more than just giving people a handout, right? It's really giving them the leg up. And that's, I think, the example of what we're doing. Flash forward to uh, just last week, I met a mom who's new arrival. Uh, so she's uh, newly arrived. She has legal entry into the country. And she comes to uh, Texas. She gets a bus ticket to Boston. People say, there's go to Boston. There's help there. And when she arrives, she's like, all I really want to do is work and make a better life for my child. So mom with a single child. And the second thing she was concerned about is making sure her son could get into school, which we've done. So he just started kindergarten uh, today. And we hope he has as much promise as Hattie's son did uh, when we met him 14 years ago. Wow, that's amazing and, and yeah. so moving. And when you talk about the children, there has to be some mm -hmm. sort of 
mental, emotional toll, right? That it yeah. takes. Maybe they're embarrassed. They don't feel like they could share this with others. Right. How do you guys come in to, to support the mental and then emotional yeah. state? Yeah, Jared, you hit the nail on the head. So if you think about many different homeless populations, veterans who need our support, adults struggling with mental health and substance use disorders, runaway teenagers, adults, parents, and children, all the research shows that the person who is most vulnerable over time is actually a child because they're in their own developmental stages, right? right. So the parent's crisis, the instability has a long-term effect on them right? So a, a homeless child today without intervention is three times more likely to become the homeless adult that you may see on your street corner, right? Wow. So the in, intentional efforts we do is to make sure that there are early interventions and additional supports for the child as we're helping the parents gain a better job, right? Get a leg up financially, help them find housing. So that kind of combination is kind of the, really the key to it uh, because we know it's like a two-generational whole family strategy. And we have to think about the short-term need, but also the long-term impacts on kids. Yeah. Well put there. You know, I'm, I'm curious, right? There's no shortage of charities out there. A lot doing great work, no. many with important causes. When you get in front of potential donors, mm -hmm. what do you tell them that makes them want to support family aid over maybe some other causes out there? Yeah. First thing is I tell them I went to Penn State. So, there you go. There you that'll go. Re no, that'll uh, resonate with the right people. That, that work, unless they're from Ohio State, you know, BC. <laughs> Forget it. Uh, yeah, then that's a non-starter. Actually, what we do talk about is actually this two-generational approach. I think part of the challenge nationally is that when people hear homelessness, right, it's a simple yeah. answer. So how do you solve homelessness? Just give them a home. Give them a house, right? The reality is, and the difference for family aid is that we don't put the housing at the forefront. We put the service to the child and the parent at the center. So we have this kind of two, two part strategy, worry about the people, worry about their concerns, help them get a leg up while we're finding them housing. And that's kind of a differentiating for family aid and a group of other organizations around the country. It's through the Aspen Institute Ascend Network, which is this group of 500 agencies across the country that are innovating. And the idea that if you put people at the center of it and you solve for their challenges and issues, help them get a leg up, their path to self-sufficiency is faster rather than just worrying about one or the other or just the housing component to it. Yeah. And it's great because you talked about sustainability, right? So it's not just a handout that right. becomes another handout. It becomes another handout. It's really it's what it sounds like is creating an ecosystem of support so that people can gain that independence. Yeah, it's all about education and empowerment and helping people help themselves really in some ways. It's a pat phrase, but it really is helping families especially see their own power, empowering them with their strengths. It's a strengths-based strategy that really just lifts them up from where they already have some strengths and assets. So that's really the, the key strategy for us. Well, one question I want to ask Larry also is if a family has a need right away for somewhere to live, does, you, does the organization have access no. to rent controlled apartments or somewhere yep. that, that they can go in the short term that, you know, is not terribly expensive or that they can stay sure. for a period of time, what have you? Yeah. So our, our first strategy, Ross, is actually the best way to end homelessness is to prevent it. So our largest programs are to keep families in their housing while they're struggling with their housing crisis, right? Their precipitating incident. We have partners with um, the major medical centers here and the public school systems. 
So there's it's a business to business model where they're identifying families who are struggling. We go and we try to help stabilize them, you know, negotiating with the landlords, working out payment plans, connecting them to financial assistance because people really don't want handouts, but sometimes they just need it in the moment. So we're really working through the assistance and the programs that are available to them. The second is when families do fall into homelessness, we have a series of different types of housing. We have a crisis shelter for in the moment. We have emergency shelter that's organized through the Commonwealth. You have to be eligible for it. So we have 150 shelters in the greater Boston area. And then we have uh, another 150 uh, housing units uh, where families are you know, working their way to self-sufficiency. So we have a variety of different housing strategies, but underneath it really is the, um, we have 170 and, and interns, social workers. We actually had a great grad student from Penn State helping us nice. with policy this summer. Uh, so we have uh, lots of people who are qualified to provide the supports to the families and that to us is really the difference. I love that, by the way. I'm just thinking that, you know, when we first met you, it's, oh, you're helping people out after they're already at a certain level of crisis. But the fact that your organization is getting involved before it gets to that point is just super important. I wanted to reiterate that. I think that's fantastic. Keep people afloat, right? Find a way if they've fallen on, you know, loss of income, whatever it might be to, to maintain what they already have. And sure, then you look at the domino effect there. Right. They maintain what they have, then their confidence is there. They can, you know, kind of perhaps get back on their feet quicker than if they've lost everything. Exactly. Right. And for the kids in particular, that kind of spiral down developmentally for them takes a lot of the trauma and the burden off them. So the outcomes for the kids actually improve as well. Absolutely. You've impressed us already and you've impressed many uh, people thanks. as you've been selected as one of the 107 of Charity Navigator's highest ranked charities nominated for its National Community Choice Award, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And for the uh, the math folks out there, that's 0 0.05 of all charities on the platform. <laughs> so very impressive, uh, nevertheless. So what does this recognition mean to you and the organization? What, is that, what does that mean to yeah. you? Yeah, I think in some ways it's an affirmation of a fairly bold strategy. Uh, it's really a testament to the staff's great work. So Charity Navigator looks at a tremendous number of uh, indicators to determine the effectiveness of an organization, short-term and long-term, or financial health. Uh, and I really think it's a testament to the really hardworking staff uh, and the innovation that they're bringing kind of to bring this two-generational strategy. And that's what gets our family success. And their success is really what's bolstered our rating uh, nationally in terms of the work we do. I have a, a bit of a hypothetical question now. If the governor of Massachusetts or let's say even the president of the United States listens to this podcast, calls you up and says, Larry, what policy changes <laughs> should we put in place to help families encountering homelessness? What would you say? Okay. First of all, you guys, what were your majors at Penn State? I majored in finance. I was in kinesiology. There you go, right? You guys are asking a political question to a poli-sci <laughs> grad. Okay, this is... Uh, <laughs> so first of all, what I'd ask them to do, both of them, is I don't want to speak with them. I want to speak with their legislators. There you go. Right? I want to speak with the legislative branch because policy is determined ultimately by the legislatures within either state government or federal government. So we're going to go to the legislative branch, guys. All right, we'll, we'll change our hypothetical. We'll go that okay. direction. And here's where we're going to go. Right now, we're having a crisis in the United States on immigration, as you probably 
reading about, right? Philadelphia, I'm sure, Ross, you're in the Philadelphia area. You, yep. you know of this, New York, right? Boston. So the challenge, we have an obligation as a member of the United Nations, so this is international policy, right, to support people who are struggling from man-made or natural or political disasters, right? Civil war, right? Earthquakes. And in the United States, we've changed our policy over the years. Our, our, the legislative branch has changed our policy. So right now, a family that's coming to seek asylum from us has the right to enter the United States. So every family we work with has a piece of paper that says, I can be here. However, depending on which country you come from, while you have that piece of paper, sometimes that paper says, I have a right to be here, but I don't have the right to work. Mm. I don't have the right to work. That comes typically six months after you get that piece of paper to come into the country. And right mm. now, because we've diminished the federal government and we have more people arriving, like many of our own families did many years ago, they can't work. My grandparents, when they came to the United States, they walked in the country, they got their piece of paper and they could start working on day one. So the real key, I think, long-term is that for new arrivals coming to our country, we have the lowest unemployment in Massachusetts ever. I have hundreds, literally, we're working with 5,000 children and parents right now, to the one every parent wants to work. And those who are new or arrived have to wait to get their second piece of paper. The only way to change that is to have the legislative branch of the United States change the policy. Then I would go to the president and say, now sign that. Right. right. You want to align our policies that allow people who want to be here to work. That is the American dream. Welcome to our country. Now get to work. And we have to align our policies to do that. Second thing is we had a tremendous reduction in childhood poverty rates during COVID because we incentivized and supported parents with children through some tax breaks, right? Earned income tax credits. That program was shown to reduce childhood poverty to the greatest levels in the 20th, 20th century. Just one act, right? But it went away. So I'd, I'd ask the legislature to go back and rethink about putting children at the center of domestic policy and figuring out how to do that in a cost-effective way, because in the long term, it will save money, right? You have to have a long-term view that the, the, by pulling children up out of poverty and helping a family get their leg up, we're actually going to save money in the long run from all the developmental impacts for children who do live in poverty. But that's a longer question. But those are the two things that I would ask uh, of the legislative branches and then ask the governor and the mayor, president of the United States to sign that legislation. Yeah, fascinating answer there. I, I had no clue. Yeah, come into this country, you're allowed in, but wait, you're not allowed to work. work right, right. Which is like, right. what are we thinking almost? To right. The point of, how, right. How do you expect people to survive if they can't work? Right. right. They end up with family aid. That's what happens. Yes. So, wow. Right. wow. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about you. You've certainly had an interesting career trajectory. You came out of college. You held a sales manager role with P&G. You eventually go on to more of the arts and entertainment sector, but then transition actually to roles with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, YWCA, the Pine Street Inn, which is another organization serving to curb homelessness, and now, of course, Family Aid. I'm curious about the transition from the museum, arts, and entertainment type roles yeah. to more of these charitable foundations. How did that come about? Yeah. 
It, it, part of it, I, I blame Penn State for the tra career trajectory. You know, if you go back in time, you know, the 1980s, anyone who's listening from the 80s, you know, it was all about making money. It was really about getting the best job. It was a change in academia from kind of learning to also learning and, and looking up for jobs. So Procter & Gamble, great opportunity, uh, a lot of great work, you know, really proud of my corporate experience and learned a lot of really valuable lessons. But at some point, you know, life changes. Uh, my own two children had experienced uh, homelessness before uh, my spouse and I adopted them. It kind of changed wow. my framing, right? Your parent, your children change your framing. And you kind of realize, look, I got to you know what I would tell students is you spend 80% of your waking life working. You better do something you feel good about. And for me in particular, it was in service after working in corporate America, is coming back and I was living a comfortable life and uh, you no know, opportunity to give back. You know, priorities change with kids. 100%. So now we'll dig a little further there. You worked for, we mentioned when you worked for profit companies like P&G, sure. Showcase Cinemas, and then you've worked at your fair share of uh, not-for-profits, which Jared yeah. just summarized for us. Yeah. So what have you learned from the for-profit side that you've taken with you to your, yeah. the, the, the section of your career, the not-for-profit side? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the corporate side is really interesting. I also did a couple stints in uh, marketing agencies. I was a marketer before I was anything else working for real estate companies. Sure. And the one thing I learned in my corporate life that may resonate with you is all about margin. It's a business all about margins. And it's also about the bottom line, right? You don't work uh, at Procter & Gamble or Viacom without increasing market share. So those are probably the two most valuable lessons I think that I brought to the not-for-profit sector, which is what problem are we solving for and what's the bottom line? In the case of family aid, it's about the long-term income uh, outcomes for families. And then the second is that the margin in not-for-profits are much smaller. The margin of profit, obviously, but also the margin of error because there aren't a lot of resources. I think the business skills that I've learned, certainly didn't learn them as a poli-sci major, but I certainly learned them in business. I did learn the critical thinking skills but from Penn State, but I think those become applicable to any business, whether it's a for-profit or a not-for-profit, right? How to manage the margin, whatever margin that is, and making sure you're delivering on the results, which I also learned at Penn State. Fantastic. Outside of securing donations, what's the most challenging aspect of your role as president? Yeah, that's, that is a really good question. I think executive positions, whatever your role is, the numerous constituencies that you have to work with, right? Today, for example, I had a conversation with the governor. I had a, a conversation with a, a major national foundation that's supporting uh, our work. Talked to the dean of the School of Social Work at a major university here where we have a research project going, and then spent some time with one of our families. And I think that's part of the, you know, part of the challenge of any role in executive life is that you're managing, right? And working through a really complex um, constituency connections. So it makes for a really lively and exciting day. That's for sure. Do you find it difficult to balance that? I mean, you know, you at, at the heart of it, you know, you and, and everybody underneath of you that's working at family aid is yeah. trying to, you know, fight the good fight, right? Do good by the families that you're helping out. But at the same time, like you said, it, it is a business, right? One that is not for profit, but you, there's a lot to manage. Yeah. And do you find yourself sometimes getting caught up in the day-to-day -day business side and you've got to take a step back and kind of remind yourself of the mission? Not so much the mission. It's more of a chance to breathe more more deeply, okay. Ross, I'd say, which is why what Penn State football games are all about, by the way, right? Sure. So that's my chance to not think about works. Whatever Saturday it is, that is time for my friends and I 
to communicate about uh, a football game. I think we've seen this during the pandemic, you know, service providers, people in the front lines of all this work, high level of burnout. So part of it, I think, is it's they're not nine to five jobs, right? And in most careers, they aren't either. I mean, that's the Penn State work ethic, right, that we were all trained with. So part of it is just modulation, right, and making sure that you're making time for your kids, your family, your longtime pals from Penn State, those all become really important to balance kind of the weight of the work. And I'm sure, you know, the not-for-profit sector is not the only one. So you kind of touched upon the next question, which is, and, and this may be another piece of advice. We have a lot of students that listen to us here yeah. on Lion Legacy. And so what's your pitch to them on why they should consider a career in not-for-profit if that's something that is uh, is on their plate? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think in all things we talk about in our work line, the intended and unintended consequences, right? So you have to kind of know what's really the most important thing to you, uh, which changes over time, right? My early in my career was corporate work, corporate life. You know, that was kind of what was important to me. And I think for students starting out is to say really where and what do you want, right? Is it, what do you want to do with those 80, 80% of your waking hours? What do you want to do with them? Where is their value to you? It might be uh, being a financial, you know, financial investments. It may be being an accountant. It may be, you know, in working in agriculture, whatever it is, what kind of what's going to motivate you every day to get up and give your best. And I think that's the start. And then if that happens to be in the not-for-profit sector, understanding what the consequences and unintended consequences are, right? You know, you're not probably going to get rich anytime real quickly, right? So what kind of lifestyle do you want? against where you're spending your time, right? And so I think those are the heavy things that especially graduating students have to probably weigh, right? For people who are looking at different careers. Yeah, great advice right there to to so many of the students that listen. We're now going to transition and put you in the Lions Den brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride. Reminisce about your time at Penn State. Certainly it's football uh, season now. So there you go. we always like to tell our listeners to visit lions-pride.com to pick up all your Penn State apparel and gear. You know, you guys Hello. know I'm wearing mine from them. You know that tonight. So you can Love see it. video. Oh, right? there you go. That's, Shout that's out. Point. Yeah, there you go. Shout out Lions Pride. The listeners can't see you, but we promise yeah. Larry's wearing a nice little half zip uh, gray sw- sweatshirt there. We love it. All right. So Larry, super impressive. You know, love the work that you're, that you and family aid are doing. Yeah. Just, very admirable, noble. How did Penn State prepare you for the early part of your career? And then ultimately, as you got into the not-for-profit sector, what do you recall back to your Penn State days that helped you out there? Yeah, you know, actually, uh, and I've been asked that question a lot, actually, in my time at Penn State and in my work. I think the main thing, at least for the College of Liberal Arts, is the critical thinking skills, right? You know, what value is there to a liberal arts degree? And I do think every day, I think back through some of the great professors I had, Larry Spence, a guy who was just, he was a great advisor. And he just made me really think really hard about process, right? People putting ourselves kind of at the center of whatever issue you are and looking outward rather than inward, all those kind of critical thinking elements that come with a poli-sci degree I've applied pretty much both in my business, my for-profit business career and my not-for-profit business career. So invaluable educational elements that stick with me today, you know, 35 plus years later. So that's great. Toughest question of the podcast, favorite Penn State memory. Ah, wow. 
that that we can talk about on the podcast, right? Is that the, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, as I mentioned, I am a second generation Penn Stater. My father, first person in his family to go to college. Five of my seven siblings are also Penn Staters, and my earliest memory is the one that still sticks with me. I'm not sure exactly when they redid Route 322, and they added, "What's Route 99? What is that?" Right back in my day. The only way to get from central Pennsylvania, so I, I grew up in a small town called Shimokin, was to take Route 26 through Lamont into Penn State. And I remember being a little kid, and I was hanging out, this was before seatbelts, I was hanging on the backside of my dad's car. We're taking my sister to college, and we come up over the hill out of Lamont, coming down what's East College Avenue, but 26 coming down. And I remember seeing Old Main for the first time with the campus there. And I had never seen a building more than three stories tall because mm-hmm. I grew up in this little town. I said, oh my gosh, it was like a city on the hill. And for years, so my other siblings went, so the time I was four until I was you know, 21, that sight of seeing the campus coming up over the hill down into East College Ave still sticks with me. It's still the best memory, but now the roads have changed. I don't get the view anymore. So I got to come on that new highway <laughs> And the first thing I see is Beaver Stadium, which is not a bad thing. Not bad. My favorite memories out of one. Yeah. If it makes you feel any better, I think they finished 99 even after Jared and I graduated. Wow. That's saying something. Yeah. (laughs) I want to say it's what it connects 80 to 322. Right. Yeah. You used to get off 80. Yeah. Yeah. Used to get off 80 and go on down 26. That was the old way to go to Penn State. There you go. There you go. Love it. Hey, Larry, if you could go back and visit with yourself as an 18 year old freshman, you're about to start your time at University Park. If you could meet yourself at that moment in time, what advice would you share? That's a good one. First one is go to every single Penn State football game. That would be the first, right? Second was probably to eat more Penn State ice cream. But the third thing I think is, especially for an 18-year-old, is that life will play itself out, right? For many of us as college students, many of us first-time college students, you know, I was a second-time college student. My father had gone, but the um, opportunity at Penn State is taking advantage of everything but also knowing that life will play itself out, right? So what I had hoped to do in my life when I was 18 is not what I ended up doing. And I think for many of us, our career trajectories, you got to have some confidence in your, have confidence in yourself and that it all work out. I think that's really uh, a good advice for anyone, but certainly I would have appreciated hearing that from me 35 years later. Yeah, I love that advice. That's, that is very powerful and also very true. I, I feel the same way 20 years later after graduating Penn State. Along the advice lines, when you find out someone, let's say you're in Boston and someone's considering Penn State, what do you tell them? Why should they go there other than it's a little warmer than than Boston? Yeah. Well, the first thing I say is we are. And if they say Penn State, then I know we got them. <laughs> uh, the second thing where I grew up, Penn State was, we used to call it because I grew up in a small rural coal mining town. We used to call Penn State the country club uh, because my siblings had gone there. I kind of knew what they meant. And that's what I, what kind of drove me there was not so much uh, the fact that, you know, my family would only allow me to go to Penn State because it was the best place to go and the cheapest place to go with seven kids. It was because it literally has everything for everybody. Whatever you want, you can find at Penn State. And that's my encouragement. So uh, people say, gee, that was such a big university. I said, not to me, right? I had a, I'm sure you too, and many of the listeners, you make Penn State what you want it to be. If you want it to be a big, overwhelming university, you can do that. If you want to make it a small, intimate, experience with numerous opportunities, you can do that as well. And I think that's really the promise of Penn State. It could be whatever you want it to be and whatever you need it to be, because the resources 
the opportunities are all there. You just got to avail yourself to them. And that's the one thing I really appreciated about the, the Penn State experience. 100%. Well said. Yeah. And how would you say that you feel most connected to the university today? Today, two things. One is I'm very proud to be and honored to be part of the Penn State's latest, newest school, which is the Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm on a board of visitors. The school's really looking at really key areas of public policy in the United States. That's the, the poli-sci question, right? They're looking at technology, government, uh, and I happen to be like the not-for-profit to the board of visitors. And so that's a way that uh, it's going to bring me onto campus in a few weeks. So that's a great way to stay connected to the students and the graduate students at the school. So that's one. Second, every football game, uh, my best friends, eight, eight friends for life, uh, we, wherever we are in the world, we are watching online the Penn State football game and we text each other through the whole game. So it's like 480 texts. One of our, one of our friends is in Kansas. The average number of texts is 480. It's a blow by blow for those of us who can't see the game or listen to it on, a, you know, on streaming. And the rest of it is about our kids, our careers, uh, memories. We're, we're shooting photos back and forth from the, our days uh, hanging out on West College Ave and going to the diner. And to me, again, you talked about how you manage the work-life balance. Like I look forward to uh, football season every year because it's a really a great chance uh, to connect with uh, some of my best pals from Penn State. Yeah, we, we have something similar as well, Ross and I and a group of our friends. Yeah. We wake up every Saturday morning. There's a prediction. Everyone puts in their prediction, of course. There you go. Penn State's always winning every single <laughs> game, no matter what. It's true. Usually, usually not close to prediction either. And yeah. we just, yeah, have a great time connecting yeah. around football. But to your point, you know, life outside of football. Yeah. yeah. Very great. best. Yeah. You know, this has been a great conversation for us tonight i think one you remind us how fortunate and grateful we should be and feel that we walk into a house and a home every single day it's something that unfortunately many of us take for granted but this conversation made us kind of pause and think about we should not be taking that for granted and then also you you brought up some advice around what do you want to do? What's the value you want to create? What's a value to you? And it's very clear that the value in your life is helping people in need, helping families help themselves. You do that on a day-to-day -day basis throughout your career, but then you also had it live out by adopting, I think you said you adopted some children as well, yep. which is just such a special gift and really speaks to the person that you are. We want to thank you for that, but we're also really proud that you're part of the Penn State family as well. Yeah, thanks very much. I really appreciate the uh, chance to talk a little bit more about our agency and all the good works of our staff. So thanks very much for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. Of course, we'll certainly let everyone know where they could visit familyaidboston.org. And we also end the podcast with, we are Penn State. <laughs> Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.